0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, as we begin this morning, I want you to think back to a time in maybe middle or high school, or maybe even college, where you were where you felt like what you were being taught in school was pointless. Like, like especially if you had already figured out what you wanted to do with your life or what you're going to college for. I'm sure we've all had times where we were sitting in school and we were like, "This doesn't serve that purpose, so this is just meaningless for me to sit through." Um, I think, like for myself, I think back to high school. My worst subject in all of high school was chemistry. Like, I hated it. Like I I knew I'm like, I'm not going to be a chemist. I'm not going to be a scientist. I'm like, I'm sure this information is important, but let someone else deal with it. Like this is not my jam. And I just, I couldn't get into it no matter how hard I tried. Or I think back to uh, middle school geometry class where you like learn shapes. And um, which should should be simple, but I remember uh, I had a buddy back then who was super into NASCAR. And that was like, and all he said growing up was his, his goal is he was going to be in a NASCAR pit crew, specifically for Jeff Gordon. He was like, that's all I'm going to do when I grow up. That's all he cared about. And I remember him raising his hand in class one day and asking, like, look, if I'm going to be in Jeff Gordon's pit crew, the only shape I need to know is round. Like, it's the shape of a tire. I'm not going to accidentally put on, like, a trapezoid onto his car. That's all I need to know. But I think we've all been there, where we're just like, why are we even spending time learning this? This is pointless. And I bring that up because I think if we're not careful, that's how we can look at the passage that we're going to be going through today. I don't think any of us would admit it out loud, but I think if you're just reading on your own and get to these couple chapters we're going to look through, it can be easy to think, well, this is kind of pointless for us nowadays. What's the reason to even uh, read through it, let alone spend an entire Sunday preaching through it? But I think if we look a little deeper into them, we'll see that they can actually have a pretty big impact on our faith. Um, well, if I haven't met you before, my name is Brian. I'm on staff here at New City. Today we're going to be continuing our look through the book of Exodus, and we're going to be in Exodus chapters 28 and 29. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there uh, with me, or if you don't have one, there's a black one in the seat back around you. And if you don't own a Bible at home, you're welcome to take that one home as our gift to you today. Um, but we're going to be looking at some chapters that may seem, and on just kind of a surface reading, kind of irrelevant, or maybe even a little weird. Uh, But I think if we look a little deeper into them, we'll see there's a a lot more going on. You know, in fact, last week, um, Dylan mentioned that we're getting to the point in the Bible where these uh, Bible reading plans, like where you just start at the beginning and read straight through, they really start to break down. Because like if if you're reading straight through the Bible, Genesis, like there's a lot going on in Genesis. It's exciting. The first, you know, half, three quarters of Exodus, like it's action-packed, it has familiar stories, it's exciting. And then we get to these past couple weeks where we've had some laws that are kind of difficult and maybe make us a little uncomfortable to read, or kind of uh, architecture of the tabernacle where it may seem a little detailed. And then if, if, if you're getting through all that and then you get to chapter 28, the heading in my Bible is the priestly garments. <laughs> like, clear. if there's ever a, a chapter you could skip when reading, it seems like it would be the priest's clothes. Like... You know, if you just read the headings, it's like they have a a robe and a turban, and like there's a bunch of jewels listed, and I get it. Like, that's what they wear. And then you go to chapter 29, and it's the consecration of the priest, and it's it's kind of weird and it's kind of a little gross. And so it's like, well, if we're going to skip any two chapters, let's just move on to chapter 30. But I think if we do that, we really miss out on a lot that's going on here. So if we rewind a little bit, um, back all the way back beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, um, humans were able to live in the presence of God. And, and one of the biggest uh, repercussions of the fall or of mankind's sinning was the fact that man was to be separated from God. And this is how it went up until now. And what we found last week and when Dylan was talking about the construction of the tabernacle is that inside the tabernacle, there would be this room, the most inner room called the Holy of Holies. And in this room... Uh, the high priest would be able to actually go and be in the presence of God. So this is a, this what we're reading is actually a really huge deal because this is now a time when, when mankind can actually be in the presence of God once again. So what we're reading in these chapters is not simply what priests should wear and in the next chapter what priests should do, but it's what it would take for a sinful and broken person to actually be able to enter the presence of God. So So what does this mean for us today? Before we even start reading it, I can, I can tell you right now, obviously, what we're going to read is no longer required of us. So what's, what's the significance? What significance does it have for us today? And that's the question we're going to try and answer today, and that's this. It's, it's how do we approach the presence of God? How do we approach the presence of God? And when I, when I ask that, I mean it kind of with a double meaning. First off, from kind of a philosophical aspect, how is it even possible that we could approach the presence of God? Like, how is that even a thing that's possible for us to do? And then on the flip side, we're going to look at it practically. Like, what does it actually look like to approach the presence of God? How do we approach the presence of God? So today we're going to look at a couple of chapters. And for time's sake, we're not going to read all the way through them. Um, but I encourage you on your own to go, through, go in this week and read all the way through and just see how much detail is put into these chapters. But we're going to start reading this morning in Exodus chapter 28, um, starting in verse 1. And we're just going to read the first section of this chapter. And it says this, starting in chapter 28, verse 1. It says, this is God talking to Moses. He says, Have your brother Aaron with his sons come to you from the Israelites to serve me as priests. Aaron, his brother Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, make holy garments for your brother Aaron for glory and beauty. You are to instruct all the skilled artisans whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom to make Aaron's garments for consecrating him to serve me as priest. These are the garments they must make. A breastpiece an ephod, a robe, a specially woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make holy garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so that they may serve me as priests. They should use gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. And so if, if you read this whole chapter, you'll see in-depth detail of each uh, piece of the priest's garments. But to save us a little bit of time this morning, I kind of found like a, a modern uh, rendering of what this would look like. So you can go ahead and put that picture up. This is, this is sort of what would it would look like for a priest. <laughs> So this is High Priest Kevin, uh, <laughs> uh, but this is this is what they would look like, sort of, just different, you know, face. Um, oh, you can take that down because that we can focus on what we're doing here. Um, but uh, what, what's what's interesting here is this isn't just simply a, a list of royal clothing for the sake of looking nice. In other words, this isn't just to make them look like they were better than everybody else or above everybody else, but this was the exact materials and linens and colors as the tabernacle itself. So while, while the tabernacle was meant to kind of house the presence of God, is meant to represent the presence of God, in the same way the priest's clothing, would, they would be clothed in all the beauty and glory of God's presence as well. And if we keep reading, we see some really interesting details. We see that on his shoulders and chest and on his turban were, were the names of the sons of Israel. And he had uh, memorial stones on his shoulders um, that, uh, for the Israelites. And what it was doing is it was signifying that he was coming before the Lord on their behalf. So these garments, they weren't, they weren't self-serving. In other words, they weren't just to make him look like he was better than everybody else. But, but they showed that he was coming before God with all the guilt and with all the shame of the entire nation of Israel on his shoulders. See, being a high priest was, was was an honor, but it was also terrifying and difficult. You know, all these all these garments, while they were while they were beautiful, while they were, while they were ornate, they were heavy and they were painful. From from uh, what I could find, it was likely they weighed in excess of hundred pounds. And, and so this isn't just a way for him to look like he was better than everybody else, but he was going before um, God with all the weights and the pain of the entire nation of Israel. And because sin cannot exist in the presence of God, there was always the possibility that he would have been instantly killed when walking into God's presence. See, this is a huge deal. And what I want us to see from that is this. It's that, it's that we should not be able to approach the Lord. We shouldn't, and that may sound weird, and that may sound a little uh, negative, but if we're being honest with ourselves, if I look at just myself, look at all the details they had to go through, both in this chapter and the next, everything that they had to go through before coming before the Lord, and then I just look at my own week, and all the times I messed up, and all the times I did things my own way, and all the things I didn't do things the way I should have, there's no reason I should be able to approach the Lord. Logically, at least, there's no reason we should be able to approach the Lord. But that simple fact should show us how great his love is for us and how great his grace is for us. If we continue reading in in, um, chapter 28, we'll see a lot of detail of all the individual uh, pieces of the clothing, but we're going to skip over to chapter 29, and we're going to look at um, the first section of this chapter, which is the consecration of the priest. So we're going to pick up reading in chapter 29, verse 1, and read this first section. And, and it says this, starting in 29.1. says, This is what you are to do for them to consecrate them to serve me as priests. Take a young bull and two unblemished rams with unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers coated with oil. Make them out of fine wheat flour, put them in a basket, and bring them in the basket along with the bull and two rams. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tents of meeting and wash them with water. Then take the garments and clothe Aaron uh, with the tunic, the robe for the ephod, the ephod itself, and the breastpiece. Fasten the ephod on him with its woven waistband. Put the turban on his head and place the holy diadem on the turban. Take the anointing oil, pour it on his head and anoint him. You must also bring his sons and clothe them with tunics. Tie the sashes on Aaron and his sons and fasten headbands on them. The priesthood is to be theirs by a permanent statute. This is the, the way you will ordain Aaron and his sons." Now, if we continue reading this chapter, this chapter continues with some very vivid and, frankly, pretty gross uh, detail of what they had to do. Like this, if you're uh, squeamish or if you're a vegan, then this is, this is not the chapter for you. I'm just going to be honest. Like, just to give you, like, some, some highlights of what they had to do, they had to, you know, bring the, the bull and two rams and then... Just skimming through, they had to uh, take some of the bull's blood, put it on, or kill it, obviously. Then uh, put some of the blood on the altar, then take the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe of the liver, two kidneys with the fat on them, and burn them. Uh, take the ram, take its entrails and legs and its head, burn it, uh, take the other ram, cut it into pieces, put some of the blood on Aaron's right earlobe, his son's right earlobe on their thumbs of the right hand and on their big toe? Like, what are we talking about here? And then put some blood on them and oil and anoint them and then uh, take, some of the, take some of the flesh and boil it and eat it. So after all this stuff, they had to then eat some of it. Like, this is weird. And I think we need to be okay with, the, with admitting sometimes that reading things in the Bible through a modern lens it's weird. Like, if imagine, okay, so the, the closest like, parallel we have to this, it's not the exact same, but to their consecration would be like ordaining a pastor. It's not the same thing, but that's the kind of general idea. Now, uh, we just recently sent out uh, Adam Pickard and, and uh, Citizens Church out in Kernersville as our first church plant. And before we sent him out, we had an ordination service here for him, which a lot of you came to. Now imagine if you came to Adam's ordination service, Sing some songs, have a seat, bring Adam up here, and we're like, okay, through these doors, come on in. We bring in a cow and two rams, and had, had handed Adam a knife and said, all right, now uh, please remove the liver and the kidneys, and then boil it as if that's not the grossest way to prepare meat, and then eat some of it, like, and then go plant a church. You're good. Like, I think most of us would be like, I don't think I'm going with them to plant this church. Like, this is, I don't think this is my thing. But this is, this is. Weird, and I think it's okay to admit that. And, and honestly, there's a lot of detail here, and we could, go, we could spend all day kind of um, talking through the reasoning behind each uh, individual instruction here, because as we know, there's no detail in God's instruction that's wasted. In other words, there's, there's nothing that he instructs anybody to do that's just for the sake of doing it. However, there's just a couple things I want us to kind of focus on in this chapter. And First off, we see in verse 4 uh, that the priests were to be washed before anything else. And the reason for that is, like, as I mentioned, sin cannot exist in the presence of God. So this was a sort of symbolic cleansing of their, of their former self before they could enter into God's presence. And what's interesting is they couldn't even put on their old like, undergarments or any clothing they were wearing before underneath the priestly garments because it was, it was supposed to uh, uh, symbolize that they were leaving their entire selves behind before entering into God's presence. And what I think we need to see here through these chapters is that the, these priests, they were not perfect people. They were people, and they they weren't sinless. They weren't above sin. They were broken and sinful, and God used them anyways. And that's what I want us to see here, and that's this. It's that God uses the ordinary, that God uses ordinary and imperfect people like you and me. See, these priests were not perfect. They're not above sin. In fact, in just a, a couple chapters, we'll see Aaron directly disobey a commandment, and it'll cause God to tell Moses, quote, leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. See, these are, this is why these chapters are so in-depth and descriptive. It's not just, it's not just detail for the sake of detail, but this is, this is God using ordinary people, but they had to be perfected before entering his presence. They had to be purified before entering the presence of God. See, God uses the ordinary. So what does this mean for us today? What, why, why, even, why, why don't we have to perform these rituals? And, and why is it important for us to learn the detail they had to go through before coming before the Lord? And and the reason for that is this. It's because Jesus is our high priest. This is the reason we no longer have to perform these rituals. It's not because they're, they're dated. It's not because they're irrelevant. It's because Jesus came to this earth to take the place of the high priest now and forever. And because of him, we can enter into the presence of God. See, it's not that it's not that these all this detail is just irrelevant nowadays or that there's no reason to read it. It's reading these should put into perspective how incredible it is that we have 24 7 instantaneous constant access to God. It's something that I think, especially if you're a believer for a while, it's something we can easily take for granted. But if we see how much painstaking detail went into going before the Lord back in this time, when now uh Because of Jesus coming, because of him dying a literal death for you and for me, we have constant access to the Father. See, Jesus coming and dying didn't just um, save us from spending eternity apart from God, as if that wouldn't be enough. But it allowed us to have this constant access to God. And it's something that I don't think there's a single person on earth that can ever fathom the, the enormity of this reality. I don't think it's possible for us to understand the importance of this reality. But we see that we, we do see a little bit of this importance of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf in the New Testament. If we look specifically in the book of Hebrews, which this will be up on the screen, you don't have to turn there, but if we look in Hebrews um, chapter 10, this talks about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Starting in chapter 10, verse 12, it says this. It says, But this man, talking about Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, the Lord says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, and I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So if we look at verse 17 again, uh, we see that uh, it says that I will never again remember their sin and their lawless act. See, how incredible is it that your sin cannot just simply be forgiven, but forgotten? I think that's something that we can sometimes forget. Like, think about it like this. Do you ever have, have you ever had something in your life that happened that you've just never been able to forget? Like maybe something embarrassing that happened to you as a kid or when you were younger, that anytime you think of it, it just like, it makes you turn red and it's embarrassing and you're like, I hope people in my current life don't ever find out about this thing that happened in my past life. When I think about that, something spe- very specific comes to mind, and it brings me back to middle school, um, probably like sixth or seventh grade. I'm guessing this was. Now I'm I'm an introvert. If if you don't know me, I'm I'm an introvert. But back then I was, and I've, I've talked about this before. But I was like I was king introvert. Like I was I was the introvert superhero. Like you, I I just I prided myself on the fact I never had to open my mouth. <laughs> and so what happens when you're that introvert as a kid is you periodically kind of get adopted, so to speak, by an extrovert, where they just sort of allow you to exist in their presence. <laughs> and this was my life. Like, this is, I spent my time bouncing from one extrovert to another. In fact, I'm pretty sure this is how my wife Brittany and I originally got together. She just, like, allowed me to exist near her. And then <laughs> we got married. Um, but this, this was my life. And so back in, it was probably like sixth grade or seventh grade camp. We used to go to camp every year with our youth group. Um, I remember I, my buddy for the week that week, like the extrovert that had adopted me, he was like the popular of popular guys. Like he, um, his, like everyone loved him. His dad was actually on the first season of Survivor, weirdly enough, so he was like a semi-celebrity-ish. And, and, so, and for some reason, he was like my buddy for the week. And so I remember the week was coming to an end, and we were uh, sitting in the parking lot waiting for the buses to pick us up. And we were sitting on the curb, and back then, like, to stay in touch, none of us had cell phones or anything like that, so to stay in touch, you'd exchange email addresses with people. And so this girl comes up who didn't know, still don't know, no idea who it was, but she came up to, with her little address book to get my buddy's email address. So she hands it to him, he fills it out, hands it back, and then she looks to me, and, like, it's just the two of us. She can't go nowhere. Like, it's, it's just the two of us. So this is how it played out. Like, no joke, she handed it to him, he fills it out, hands it back to her. She looks to me, and this is no exaggeration. This is what she does. She goes, and hands it down to me. Like, like not, not trying to hide it. Not like, no, not no subtlety. Like, eyes rolled back so far. Like, oh, Like, I can't believe I have to pity you so much to bend down to hand you this. It was so embarrassing. And so she hands it to me. And I, but I mean, like, she hands it to me. I'm not going to not fill it out. Like, I mean, I'll be honest. Like, I mean, like, I'm an intro. Like, I'm not, what, what am I going to do, stand up for myself? Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to not give her it. And so, and so she hands it to me, and I start filling it out. And, and, and we'll pause here, because you ever have something that you look back as, like, as an adult, look back, something you did as a kid that you thought was hilarious at the time, that you look back, and you're like, that was just the dumbest. Like, why did I think that was funny? I, kids are so stupid. Like, why did I think that was funny? So we we have kind of an ongoing saga here at New City. If you've been here over the past, like, I don't know, handful of months um, where we've been revealing embarrassing and embarrassing uh, email addresses and screen names that we've had in the past. So if you're new, just to bring you up to speed, we had um, Adam Pickard, who we just sent out, who his um AOL screen name growing up was... Hello, ladies, 45, classic. We had Dylan, who revealed a few weeks back that his, if I remember right, his was that hot guy, 105 or something. Like not not a hot guy, but that hot guy, like that one that you're thinking of. Um, so I guess it's my turn. So I... Uh, what, what happens when you're a kid and you want to be funny? Like, I wanted to be funny. I love making people laugh, but I wasn't a very funny person. And so what happens when you're not very funny is you just steal other people's material. Like, that's just what you do. Like, if I have two group of, groups of friends and someone says funny in, uh, so, something funny in this group, like, I'll just steal that and use it in this group. Like, they're never going to meet. I, it's, it's a win. Like, I cannot be the only one who did this. Like, all you got to do is steal other the things that other people did that are funny and you win. So I had a buddy back then who was always like the funniest one in our group of friends, and he had made an email address. I have no clue why I thought this was funny, but it was janitor and some numbers at like AOL.com or something. Don't know. Like, I don't know if the joke was that he aspired to be a janitor. I, don't, I have no clue why we thought it was funny, but we did. And so not being able to think of anything funny myself, I just copied him. And keeping in the same kind of vein, the same like manual labor jobs, I had made an email address that was... Garbage Man at AOL.com, and so fast forward to camp. You know the the address book. She hands it to him. He hands it back. She uh, like hands it to me. I go to fill it out. I write my name, and then I start writing Garbage Man. And as the words are coming, as the letters are coming off the pen, it's like dawning on me: like this is the dumbest thing you're ever done. What are you're about to tell this person who obviously has no interest in ever speaking with you? Hey, you can call me Garbage Man it was so embarrassing. And I still remember it. And I mean, the good news is obviously she didn't want my contact information, so she probably never even read the page. But when I think back, that's just something that's always stuck out to me as just incredibly embarrassing. And I think we all have things like that, things that we've never been able to forget because of how embarrassing they were. Or on the flip side, how many of us have things that we've never been able to forget because of how much they hurt us? You know, things like, things like abuse or failed marriages or betrayal or something where someone that you trusted and loved did something to you that you just, maybe even if you, if you, if you would say that you've quote unquote like gotten over it, as if that's even a term that should be used, how, how impossible is it to forget when someone hurts you? And this should show us how massive God's love is for you. That he not only forgives time and time again, but he says you will no longer remember your sins. And, and what I think we need, to, we need to remember is this, it's that we don't worship a reluctant God. We don't worship a reluctant God. In other words, we don't worship a God that after reading about coming into his presence, we don't worship a God that says, okay, fine. That says, because you bugged me so much, because you, you asked so much, I'll allow you in my presence. Fine, and roll his eyes at us. You know, we don't worship an annoyed parent of a God, but we worship a God who says, no, I, I want you to be in my presence. I want to forgive you. I want to have a relationship with you. See, this is, this is something that is not to be taken lightly. This is a huge deal, that we worship a God that actually wants us to be in his presence. So how do we, how do we react to this? How do we react to this reality? This isn't something that should be taken lightly. So if you're, if you're following me so far and you're thinking like, okay, I get it. Like, this is a big deal. What do I do with this information? Like, how do I react? What can I do to, uh, to repay, so to speak? Or what can I do in return from this big information? I think that's a fair question. I think it's okay to wonder what should we do with this information that we learn? So we can see all, the pre- all that the priests had to go through and think that we have to do something huge in return uh, for what God has done for us. And that thought can honestly, it can paralyze us into doing nothing. That if we just think we have to do something extraordinary, we have to do something big with our faith, it can ultimately keep us from doing anything. You know, it makes me think of this. If you've, if you've known me over the past, I don't know, maybe year or so, and we've had more than like four conversations maybe, I've probably brought up that this year, my, fam- my wife and I, we've gotten like super into Hamilton, the play, like, and when I say super into, I tell people that and they're like, yeah, I like it too. I'm like, oh, no, 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 Like, like, no, 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 I, I'm not bragging. Like it's become problematic. Like it, it is, it is like, it's, it's, it's always on in the car. Like it's, and it's, it's both of us. Like, I mean, it's mostly me, but I mean, like it's both of us. Like we love it. And you know, we've, we've gotten super into it. In fact, like if you haven't seen it, like you do not want to watch it with us. Cause we will start with the opening line and we will, we will rap louder than the TV both of us to get like, we'll get a lot of it wrong, but we can go the whole three and a half hours. Like, don't front. We can do it. Like, we know the whole thing. In fact, our, our 18-month-old Theo, like, he's super into it, too, and he, he's, he does this thing where he likes to dance, and so if he hears a beat that he likes, he starts, like, bopping his knees, and then he just starts, like, karate chopping. So, like, his, his favorite character in the play is Thomas Jefferson, so he'll hear it from the other room, and he'll, he'll run in, look at the TV, and just be like, like, just, just start going. And, uh, and it's great, like, it's, it's fun, you know, it's, 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 like, it's good music and like it's well-written, but other than the fact that it's, that, it's just, that it's just entertaining, I think the reason that people are drawn to something like Hamilton is because we can all identify with someone who wants to do something great. You know, we, can, we can all identify with someone who wants to change the world or who wants to do something extraordinary. You know, it, it's a common story throughout history and throughout entertainment of people that want to do something great and I think we're automatically drawn to stories like that because we can feel the same way. In fact, in the, in the play, the, the last song of the play, it's his widow after he dies kind of singing about all the things that she did after his death. And she uses lines like, have I done enough? And where she's talking about all the things that she did kind of in his name after he died to kind of um, uh, continue his legacy and things like that. And she's, she's implying like, all these things that I've done, is it enough for you? And I think if we're being honest, that's the way we can think about our faith. That we can constantly think, have I done enough? As if there's ever, quote unquote, enough that we could do for the Lord. You know, we can think that we have to do something big, that we have to do something extraordinary for God or else it's not worth doing. And we can we can see pastors and leaders in the faith and we can think the same way about them. You know, I remember back um, like pre-COVID, we used to go down to Florida every year for a church planning conference. And I remember one year, there's this pastor speaking. He's kind of a well-known pastor and missionary. His name is Francis Chan. And he was, he was speaking. And if you've ever heard him speak, like he, he's like the most emotional human being on the planet. And he was talking about prayer. And he's talking about what he pictures when he prays. And he's talking about picturing this, um, this uh, pillar of fire before him when he prays. And then he's like crying out to God. And he's like screaming on the stage. And he's like hands, he's like on his knees. And like the stage is just like a pool of his tears. And he's just like crying out to God when he prays. And we're watching this and I'm like... Like, that is not how I prayed for my lunch today. Like, that that is not. Like, we just had that 21 days of prayer and fasting, and Dylan told me I could just make a list of 10 things and pray till I either get bored or fall asleep. Like, where's the middle ground here? But we can look at someone like that, or we can look at people who uproot their families and leave everything behind and move to a third world country, and we can look at people like that, and, and it can be so easy for us to look at that and say, hey, that's faithfulness. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's faithfulness. And anything short of that, if I'm not doing something like that, I must not be as faithful as that person. See, we can think that we're not doing enough as if there's ever anything we could ever do that could come close to what God has ever done for us. And that's the main idea I want us to walk away with today. It's what, what, what does it look like to have this extraordinary faith? This faith that, that is world-changing and life-altering and that this, this huge faith. What does it look like? And to me, I think extraordinary faith is being faithful in the ordinary. And extraordinary faith is being faithful in the ordinary, everyday situations that we find ourselves in. Now, don't get me wrong, I think it's good to sacrifice. Obviously, I think it's good to be increasing in the ways that we sacrifice for the Lord. However, there's never going to be a situation where we've done, quote-unquote, enough to repay God for what he's done. But the good news is that he never asked you to. That he never asked you to repay him. He never asked you to get even. He never asked you to do for him what he's done for you. See, the way to have this extraordinary faith, this huge faith, this faith that actually does change the world and changes lives, it's to simply be faithful in the ordinary, everyday, seemingly insignificant situations that you find yourself in. You know, it's funny, when I think, of, when I think about what, what kind of shaped my faith the most growing up and what kind of made me the, the believer I am today, the things that come to mind aren't a specific sermon that was just super moving, or it's not missions trips, or it's not, it's not one singular big event. It's things like coming downstairs early enough in the morning to find my parents spending time with Jesus before anyone was awake. It's things like, things like seeing my parents do things when they knew no one was around and when they knew nobody was watching, but just had a relationship with God no matter who saw. And that's what I think extraordinary faith is. I think it's faithfulness in the times when nobody's around, when no one can see what your relationship with Jesus looks like, when it's not, when it's not in front of everyone, when it's not posted on Instagram, it's being faithful in the times that may seem insignificant, At the beginning of this message, I asked, how do we approach the presence of God? How do we, how do we, how is it even possible we could approach the presence of God? And what does that even look like for us to approach the presence of God? And this is what I want us to see from these seemingly odd, kind of weird couple of chapters in Exodus, that that because of Jesus coming to this earth, because of him dying a literal death for you and for me, we don't have to have a human high priest go before us anymore. But we can enter the presence of God as we are, not only if we're perfect, not only once we get it all figured out, but we can come before God and be in his presence, not only if we're sinless, not only if we're perfect, but as we are in our brokenness, in our humanness. See, even when we mess it up day after day after day, he still wants to have a relationship with you. We don't worship a reluctant God. We don't worship a God that rolls his eyes when when we mess up and says, I knew he's going to do it again. I knew he was gonna mess up again. It's just, that's just him being him. But we worship a God that says, No, I forgive you. I want you to come to me. I want you to ask for forgiveness and I want you to be in my presence. And the good news of the gospel is that there's no way to repay him, but he doesn't ask you to. There's no way to get on that same level. There's no way to list everything God's done for you and then at the end of your life list everything he's done for, or you've done for him and and see if it compares. There's no comparison there, but God never asks you to compare what you've done compared to what he's done. He simply asks you to be faithful in the everyday in the ordinary, in the seemingly insignificant moments of your life. see the extraordinary faith, this huge faith, this, this, this faith that actually changes the world, that changes lives, this faith that people want, that if we're all being honest, like I want to increase my faithfulness. This huge faith doesn't come from doing one specific thing. It's not one act that increases our faithfulness, but extraordinary faithfulness is being faithful in the ordinary. Let's pray together.